When we look around, we, we see reminders of, of people like Washington or Jefferson or Lincoln or King. And events like the Civil War or World Wars, the Holocaust, Vietnam, Arlington National Cemetery, the Pentagon 9-11 Memorial. Even as I said some of those names and some of those events, different things probably triggered in your mind, memories about those events. And that's what they're, that's what they're supposed to do. We're supposed to go and to look at them and to learn about what happened in those events or what those people did. And then we're supposed to remember them in such a way that we understand who we are as a nation, where we came from, what the things have been, that, have been, yeah, that have happened am- among us and in our midst to shape us and to mold us, to make us who we are. And it also tells us quite a bit about where we may be going in, in the future. These memorials, both good and bad, remind us of, of our identity as a nation. Well, the book of Exodus is intended to work the same sort of way for the nation of Israel. When we read through the book of, of Exodus, we find a, a true story in which God is telling His people who they are, where they came from, and where He is leading them. The word Exodus itself means a, a going out. And this is what God wants His people to know about Him, that, that they are a people who were brought out. They were a people who were rescued, who were redeemed, that they were formerly in slavery, but He miraculously intervened in a way that shapes who they are and how they should understand their God. The book of Exodus is intended to inform their identity as the people of God. And in it, he's going to establish all sorts of different memorials. The Passover, the Red Sea event. When you read through the Psalms and the prophets again and again and again, it talks about God, how he splits the sea and delivers his people. You're going to have the law. You're going to have the sacrifices. You're going to have the tabernacles. All these things are instituted in ways that are intended to to shape the people of God. All with the ultimate aim that they would know Him. That is one of the major themes in the book of Exodus, is that God does all of these things to His people and for His people and among His people that His people would know Him. Exodus 6-7 He says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you up from under the burdens of the Egyptians. God wants Israel to know who their God is. But it's not just for Israel. It's also for the Egyptians. In chapter 7, verse 5, he says, he does all this so the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. But he doesn't just do it for the Israelites and for the Egyptians. God has a bigger picture in view. Chapter 9, verse 16, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You remember when later on when Rahab in the book of, of Joshua, when some Israelites roll in there, she's like, whoa, 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 I heard about your God and what He did. The, the fame of God had gone out. And even now, thousands of years later, His name is being proclaimed in Washington, D.C., This is why God gave the book of Exodus, that his name might be made known and it would shape his 
people. That we would know that He is a holy God, a compassionate God, a powerful God, a sovereign God, a providing God, a protecting God, a God who is worthy of worship and obedience. This is the God of Exodus. Now, if you're keeping score at home, I think the book of Exodus is kind of arranged in two major sections. Chapters 1 through 18, where we're going to see the rescue of God's people. Chapter 1 through 18, the rescue of God's people, where God's power is going to be put on display through his deliverance of Israel from Egypt through the plagues and the Red Sea. The rescue of God's people, his power put on display, chapter 1 through 18. And then chapters 19 through 20, the revelation to God's people. The revelation to God's people. Once he brings them out, he's then going to tell them who he is. This is where God's provision is seen clearly with the manna and the water and the law. God will instruct about who he is and how he loves them. So we have the rescue of God's people and the revelation to God's people. That's the book of Exodus kind of as a, as a big picture. This morning we're going to be in chapters 1 through 2. We're going to, we're going to journey through these, these opening scene here. And as we do, here's kind of the big idea that hangs over uh, these first two chapters, and in one sense, really the whole book. God delivers His people from all their afflictions so they will know that He is the Lord. God delivers His people from all their afflictions so that they will know He is the Lord. It's the main idea for this, this morning. Now, as we walk through this, we're going to see kind of four, four scenes unfold, and then we'll conclude with a few, a few reflections. Let's begin here in verses 1 through 7, where we're going to see Israel's flourishing. Israel's flourishing, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But, verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, as we come to the book of Exodus, the author is assuming that you just read Genesis. In order to understand Exodus, you've got to understand what what happened in Genesis, right? You have the, the creation of the world. You have the fall into sin. You have the flood as a form of judgment. You have Babel. And then right after Babel, God says, I'm going to make a nation out of nothing. I'm going to take an idolater named Abram and a barren woman, his wife Sarah, and I'm going to create miraculously in them a child that they, this, all their descendants are going to be a great nation. And God made a covenant with this guy, Abraham, at the time was Abram, renames him Abraham, that shows up in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And this, this covenant, which if covenant means promise, this promise that he makes with them, this covenant, will dictate the way that God is going to relate to his people Israel forevermore. 
And the covenant has three parts. Now, the reason I'm explaining this is because this is super-duper important for really understanding all of your Old Testament and really the rest of the Bible. This promise that God makes with Abraham sets the stage and shows up everywhere in the rest of the Bible. The three parts of this covenant are land, seed, and blessing. God promises Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, a place where my presence and my provision and my protection will be known. I'm going to give you land. And now I'm going to give you seed or offspring or descendants. I'm going to give you a bunch of descendants, which is going to be miraculous because he has a barren wife. And then ultimately, there's going to be one descendant who's going to rescue the world. His name's Jesus. And then there's the blessing that God promises to bless them and that he is going to relate to other nations in the way that they relate to Israel. If they bless Israel, he will bless them. If they come against Israel, God will come against them. We're going to see that on full display in the book of Exodus. All right. Now, after Abraham, he has a son, Isaac. Jacob, also known as Israel, he has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the end of Genesis, you've got Joseph, who's one of the 12 sons. And he has been used by God to save the whole world from a famine. And Egypt is all of a sudden amazingly blessed because Israel is among them. And they're showing favor to the nation of Israel. And then the book of Genesis ends with Joseph dying, which, the, which Moses mentions here in the beginning of Exodus. Uh, Joseph's last words, he said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So at the, when you come to the end of Genesis... In the beginning of Exodus here, we see that the blessings are happening, all right? Israel has been cared for and provided for. Goshen is plush. Everything is well. Egypt is blessed. Blessings going on. And seed is happening. There are, they are, if you saw there in verse uh, 7, fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied, grew exceedingly strong. The land was filled. So the offspring are happening. But what's not happening yet? They're not in the land. They're in a land, but they're not in the land. So how will God get them out of Egypt, and how will he get them into the, the promised land? Well, that sounds exciting, doesn't it? Well, things are going to get worse before they get better. So the, the ride to the promised land is going to be quite, one, quite a lot of turbulence here. Affliction is awaiting them along the way because God is going to be instructing them with lessons they need to know so that they can truly know Him as the God that He, he is. So that's Israel's flourishing. Only other thing I want to say about this before we move on to the next bit. One of the things I do in my Bible is anytime, especially in the Old Testament, that I'm reading along and I see something about the land, the seed, or the blessing, I write in the margin, AC, not air conditioning, but Abrahamic covenant, and then I circle it. Because this promise that God made to Abraham shows up everywhere. When I'm looking through Exodus right now, there's ACs everywhere. And it's all like that through the rest of the Bible. So this covenant, keep in the back of your mind, it's going to be kind of a North Star for what God's doing with this people. That's Israel's flourishing. Second part here. Israel's affliction. Israel's affliction. Beginning in verse 8 down through 22. Verse 8 
Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. We're not sure exactly, but roughly some 300 years has passed since Joseph died. Times have have changed here in, in Egypt. History has been forgotten or edited as so often occurs. And there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, which should be utterly striking. How in the world could they not know about Joseph? He's the reason they're so blessed. Well, you've got this new king with a new dynasty and a new way of doing things. And if he doesn't know Joseph, that means what else doesn't he know? He doesn't know Joseph's God, which means he doesn't know why Egypt is so prosperous. Just a side note, by the way, this is one of the reasons that God's people ought never put your hope and your trust in people or politicians or systems or circumstances because all those things change. Don't sell your soul to something that is not going to ultimately last. Well, Pharaoh calls a press conference and he begins to spread some fear-based propaganda about these foreigners who are among them. Verse 9, Behold, the people of uh, the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we, which was true. But then he spins it in such a way that he's like, but this is trouble. And he gives two reasons. The first is that because if war breaks out, they're going to side with our enemies. Right? And then secondly, if they can, they're going to leave the land, which is going to have huge economic impact. So, verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly with them which if you had read Genesis recently, that might remind you of the serpent who is more crafty than any other beast of the field, who was shrewd. Well, here, Pharaoh, who is going to be much like Satan in many ways, is going to act shrewdly with Israel. And basically, he's going to come up with a two-part plan of how to deal with Israel among them. The first part of the plan is enslavement. Enslavement. Look at verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So Pharaoh's remedy for Israel's prosperity is enslavement. He puts taskmasters over them to control them, to press them or force them into labor into building and farming. 
He does this not just to build the economy, but also to break their spirits and to demoralize these people that he views and wants the whole nation to view as a threat. Now, did you catch the words that were used there? Afflict, oppress, dread, bitter, hard service ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It's easier to just read over that and to not feel what is happening here to these people. Over vacation, I began reading My Bondage and My Freedom by Frederick Douglass, a former slave not far from here in Maryland. He grew up there and eventually was, became a freedman. And in the early chapters of his, his autobiography, he recounts, some of the most horrific and heart-wrenching conditions that slaves faced in our country uh, as, as a black man. And as I just read, I mean, you just could not help but be grieved and feel the weight of the sorrow that this man and his family and, and so many went through. So when you read this passage, you got to know these are real people that this is really happening to. And this this cheap labor here, free labor, leads to financial flourishing for Egypt. So previously, Israel had flourished because God's hand was on it, but now they're flourishing because they've enslaved people. So once again, you can't judge if a nation is really blessed by the economy because they've moved from the right way to do it to an evil way of of boosting their economy. So much so that they have store cities now called Pithom and Ramses, which are named after Egyptian gods of Atum and Ra, which is really interesting because later on, God's going to show who the real gods are. He's going to assassinate all of Israel, of all of Egypt's gods in front of them. But as of right now, they're boasting in these storehouses named after their gods who are blessing them. Well, the plan backfires. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. What you've got here, and you begin to see it already, is you have two forces colliding. You've got Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, and you've got God, the all-powerful deity in heaven. And Pharaoh's doing everything he can to choke out Israel, but they just keep flourishing. Why? Because God's promises are more powerful than Pharaoh's plan. This is what we're going to see all the way through this. Pharaoh's going to do everything he can to try and squash out Israel, but you cannot kill God's people because God is for them. And if God is for them, who can be against them? Well, even in the face of all this affliction, God remains faithful. Which, by the way, it's important to notice here that God's faithfulness does not mean that their affliction and suffering automatically cease. In fact, it actually increases. So you've got to move on to part two, plan two. The first was enslavement. Now we've got to exterminate. Now we've got to exterminate, says Pharaoh, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives one of whom was named Shipporah and the other Puah, 
when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if if it is a daughter, she shall live. So Pharaoh's plan wasn't working, so he upped the pressure here. He's moved from slavery to slaughter. He has commissioned the midwives here to murder every baby boy born to a Jewish mother. Now, I want to propose that these are Egyptian midwives who later on, through all of this, are going to get converted and take uh, Israelite names. Um, it, it, It seems like that's probably what's happening here. But either way, you have these midwives. And, and the, the command is kill the baby boys. And why, why is Pharaoh going to say kill the baby boys? Maybe soldiers, yeah. Fathers. If you can remove future fathers, you can exterminate this race. Again, do not allow the black and white pages to, to confuse you, to deceive you, to fool you. This is real. This was happening. Now, what happens if these midwives refuse to comply? What could happen to them? They get executed too. Well, what's going to happen? Well, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. (laughs) So Pharaoh rolls in, and he's like, Yo, what is up? What is happening? And and the midwives are like, Yo, these Hebrew women, I mean, you know, they're just, I mean, the Egyptian women just are not like them. They're, they're quick. They're quick, Pharaoh. Sorry. I mean, they, they get in here and the baby's out. And next thing you know, they're gone. They're, they're fast. <laughs> Don't miss what they did here, though. They chose to disobey the most powerful man on the planet. They risked the consequences of disobeying the king of Egypt. Because, now do you think they feared Pharaoh? Sure they feared him. But who did they fear more? They feared God more. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. These midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And in the same vein, like a thousand years later, when you have Esther, who's going to intercede on behalf of the nation of Israel and says, if I perish, what? I perish. Just a brief word of application here for us from these sisters and their examples. One of the most important lessons you can learn in life is to obey God and let him handle the consequences. Obey God and let him handle the consequences. There are a few lessons that are more important in your walk as a child of God than that one. 
Trust him, obey him, take him at his word, and let him handle all of the fallout. Because he's going to be able to run your life a whole lot better than you are anyway, and he is sovereign and wise and good. And you can trust him. Now, it's really interesting here. Uh, What do you notice about these midwives? What stands out to you besides their courage? They've got names, which seems pretty typical. People have names. But their names are recorded in the Bible. Shipra, which means beautiful one, and Pua, which means splendid one. Those are Hebrew names, which, again, I take that they were Egyptians who who saw the witness of these people get converted, and now they get Jewish names. And, and what's, what's most striking is not just that they're, what their names mean, but that their names are remembered. Proverbs 10.7, The memory of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Whose name is not mentioned here? We don't know which Pharaoh this is. The most powerful man on the universe, you want to try and figure out which Pharaoh it is? Google which Pharaoh is during Moses. Nobody, we can't figure it out. It's hard to figure out. There's some good guesses out there, but his name's not here. The most powerful man on the planet. And here you've got these two midwives who courageously stand up in faith, and God puts their name in the book forevermore. Well, verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. As with Rahab, God saw the faith of these women and rewarded them. Not so much necessarily for their words, but for their works. Evidences of faith. Evidence that they aligned with God's people rather than the evil empire of Egypt. God sees and he rewards And he doesn't always reward in the same way, but this is the way that he blessed them. Well, Pharaoh's not done. So now he's all, here in verse 22, he's going to enlist all the Egyptians in an all-out genocide against Israel baby boys. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall not, uh, I'm sorry, but you shall let every daughter live. This is horrific. You've got Pharaoh now commissioning the entire nation to be baby hunters. Every neighbor is now a baby hunter, watching pregnant Jewish women and finding out as quickly as they can when the baby's born, was it a boy or was it a girl? And if it's a boy, I'm going to have to take him. Now, one of the things that's going to be important to understand as we walk through the next couple chapters, particularly of the book of Exodus, is the way that the Nile was viewed by Egypt. The Nile was one of the chief gods. They, they were a polytheistic. Poly means many, theistic god. They had, they, were, they had many gods. One of their primary gods was the Nile. So it is very likely that this throwing of the Hebrew babies into the Nile River would have been seen as some kind of worship, some kind of sacrifice to the God of the Nile. Well, in a few chapters, God's going to show, he's going to talk about blood in the Nile, and he's going to slay that God in front of all of them. But for now, we don't know that yet. 
And what we see here is the blood of Hebrew baby boys staining the river. This is, of course, blatantly satanic. Satan loves to kill babies. And Satan loves to kill God's people. This echoes what happened in Jesus' day when he was born and Herod commissioned all of the babies two years and under in Bethlehem to be killed. It's also eerily similar to Hitler in the Holocaust. So what will God do? For the most part here, God has been silent. He has honored the midwives, but, but in one sense, everybody in Israel doesn't know that. To them, God seems absent. But he's not, not going to be absent for long. The third scene, a Redeemer is born. A Redeemer is born. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she uh, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitum and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Verse 4, and his sister, Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So the, the scene moves from a national level to one family, to one Israelite home where there would have been prayers and singing over this pregnant wife hoping and waiting for a child to be born, but deep down hoping it's not a boy. This husband and wife, in chapter 6, we know their names, Amram and Jokbed. They, have, they give birth to this baby boy. Well, she does. He doesn't do anything, but she does. I've got five, I understand. Um, one of the other things just to notice about this is that he is, do you notice his family, his tribe there, verse 1? From the house of Levi. This is going to be very important because the Levites, these are going to be the priestly line because Moses has a brother, his name's Aaron. He's going to be the first high priest. And the reason is because of what Moses is going to do for his people. We're going to see it happen three times here in a moment. Moses is going to intercede. He's going to intercede. He's going to intercede. And later on, after the law is given and the golden calf thing happens, he's going to intercede again. And these intercessions of Moses is going to mark the sort of ministry that God loves because that's his heart. And he's going to make the descendants of Moses, the Levites, be the priests of the nation. Well, we have immediate drama here as soon as this baby is born because this is a baby boy, and he is born under a death sentence. Yet, we notice here that his parents are not controlled by fear, but they hid him as long as he could because, I mean, the first few months, babies, I mean, they cry a little bit. Well, some of them cry a lot, but mostly they'll cry a little bit, and then they'll sleep a lot, but then they start, they start waking up. They become noisemakers about three months. But Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, verse 23, that by faith Moses was hidden for three months by his parents because they were not afraid 
of the king's edict. Once again, we see the people of faith fearing God more than Pharaoh. Which again, I think it's so instructive for us to not be tossed to and fro simply because of who's sitting in a big white house. No matter who's ever in that house, they don't rule the world. God rules the world. God's people need not be tossed to and fro with fear because there's a God who's bigger and stronger. Well, eventually it becomes too difficult to hide him, so she made a basket from papyrus. It's interesting that the word basket is the same exact word used in Genesis chapter 6 of the ark. And there, as here, there is tar and pitch that is used to, uh, to make it so it won't leak. It's the same materials Noah used to seal the ark. Which I think is interesting, again, because by faith Noah entered the ark to escape the waters of judgment. And here, by faith, Moses is put in an ark and drawn out from the waters of judgment. Well, Moses' mom here is acting in faith. She is going to, she's done all that she can. She is now trusting God to work a miracle. She doesn't just throw him in the river, but she puts him in a basket, a mini boat, and she says, Lord, please do something. And his sister Miriam just can't leave. She's got to watch. So verse, again, uh, we saw there in verse 4, she stood at a distance to know what what would be done to him. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her her woman to, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Now, if you've never read this story before, and you see this, what do you think? Of all the people on the planet, this is the last person you want, besides Pharaoh himself, to show up. Of all the people on the planet, this is Pharaoh's daughter, If there's anybody who's loyal, if there's anybody who's indoctrinated, it's the daughter of the man who's issued the edict to kill the babies. And again, she's come down to the Nile not just to take a bath, which she would have been doing, but this again is going to be some sort of religious ritual. She's gone down to commune with the God that has been eating the the Israelite babies. This is the worst possible scenario. But God loves worst possible scenarios. It's the best backdrop for him to work a miracle, which is exactly what he does. Verse 6. She took pity on him. Something happened in her heart. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Rather than her heart be calloused like her father's, miraculously, I propose, she is moved with a tender heart of compassion. I think it's also telling here. I just I wonder how many times she's actually seen a Hebrew baby. Because you see, it's real easy when you've got the idea of doing this, when you've got the idea of disposing of children, But then when you see one, 
it does something. This is why in our land, a land where it's legal to kill babies in the womb, sonograms are such a powerful tool. I mean, I've heard testimony after testimony after testimony of people who, when they saw the heartbeat of the child in their womb, they decided to not move forward with an abortion. There's something here about reality that Satan doesn't want people to see. And she sees it and says, this is a baby. It's a Hebrew baby. Yo, you got to love Miriam. Watch this, verse 7. Then his sister, who just happened to be there, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Now, that's shrewd. (laughs) Pharaoh thought he was shrewd. Nah, Miriam, she's running this joint. She comes up and she's like, hey, you need some help? I know a girl. She just happened to be hiding over there. Notice what you found. You need someone to nurse? I bet I could track somebody down. Verse 8, Pharaoh's daughter, brilliant, go, she says. So the girl went and called the child's mother. (laughs) You just picture all the angels just being like, oh, you're kidding me. This is incredible. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Mom, you ain't going to believe what happened. Miriam comes back and tells her. She has gone from heartbroken because her son's about to be drowned in the Nile and not knowing if she'll ever see him again to all of a sudden not just getting him back and not just getting to nurse him, but getting paid for it. <laughs> like, that's incredible. God totally dupes it. I mean, it's, it's, this is, that's incredible to me. What's really interesting is on the, so this is the very beginning of the work that God's going to do through Moses, is um, Moses' mama's getting paid, taking treasures from Egypt. What happens on their way when they're rolling out of town? That's exactly right. They get a U-Haul filled with all of the plunder from Egypt, and they roll out with all their stuff. They take a bunch of riches with them. At the beginning and the end of their time here with Moses in Egypt, Israel is plundering back the the stuff that the Egyptians have stolen from them. God sees, he knows, he will work things out. Verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The Hebrew word for Moses sounds like Moses. So, yeah, that's where you get it from. Anyway, so we don't know exactly how old he was here, somewhere between two and four years. But he is now adopted into the royal family. God here delivers his people's future deliverer. And again, the book ends on Moses' ministry here in, in Egypt. It's going to start with deliverance through water from the Nile, and it's going to end with deliverance through water at the Red Sea. God bookends the ministry of Moses in this way. Now, 40 years pass. 40 years. A lot happens in 40 years. 
we get both a historical and a spiritual insight from two other places in Scripture. A historical insight comes in the book of Acts, chapter 7. Stephen, right before he is killed for his testimony against the leaders of Israel, he says this, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house. He's going to get the best education in the world. He's going to get training in literature, in the arts, in warfare, in rhetoric. He's going to be surrounded by the pleasures and the treasures of the world that few can count. All the glory in the world is at his fingertips. That's Moses' first 40 years growing up in the house of Pharaoh as a child of Pharaoh. That's a historical insight. Now a spiritual insight from the book of Hebrews that we heard earlier. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, which we just learned from the book of Acts, was 40 years old, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. Moses had all that the world had to offer at his disposal, yet he was not satisfied with it and he was not interested in it because he knew that it was fleeting. And he was willing to forsake it all in order to be with God's people. You see, he knew it was better to be with God and his people in the midst of affliction than to be with the world in all of its pleasures and treasures and not have God and his promises. So God graciously stirred Moses' heart with discontentment with the world and stirred this desire to see the promise deliver to come. And by faith, he aligned with God's purpose. Which brings us to the fourth and final scene. The Redeemer rejected. Verse 11. One day, so he's about 40 years old now, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses knew who he was. However he knew, he knew who he was. And he hated the oppression of his people. And he saw the beatings day in and day out. And on this particular day, he had had too much. And he saw this taskmaster beating one of his own people. And he looked around and he saw nobody and he killed him. And he tried to cover it up by burying him in the sand. This is his first attempt to intercede. He tries here to deliver in his own power. And Moses is a murderer. So now he has blood on his hands. Next day, verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together which may have hurt his heart even worse, to see now his own brothers fighting. 
And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? And do you mean to kill us as you killed the Egyptian? Uh Uh-oh. Moses was afraid. And he thought, Surely the thing is known. Which just a side note, no matter how well you cover your sin in the sand, you can't escape it. It's always there. It's always there. Numbers 32.23 says your sin will find you out. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Moses came to save his people. This is the second attempt to intercede. He thought that they could see it. I'm here to help you. Even in Acts chapter 7, verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. In some sense, Moses knew that God was going to use him to deliver them, but he wasn't ready and they weren't ready. And Moses had been found out. Word gets to Pharaoh, so he takes off. Heads out to Midian, which is some 150 to 200 miles, depending on the route that he took. Could you imagine that walk? He's got no no earbuds to drown out his thoughts. He's got no, no phone to watch something to take his mind off of his sorrows. It's just him. How do you think he felt on that trek out there and then sitting by that well? Confused, hopeless. He's, he's blown it, man. That was my shot. I was in the right position. I had all the influence. I was too hasty. I blew it. I'm done. I'm just done. And just when he thinks that life is over and there's no hope, the next part of God's plan just unfolds. God is sovereign over all our sins and all our failures. Verse 16, now the priest of Midian, we're going to learn his name is Ruel, also known as Jethro, had seven daughters. And they came and they drew water and they filled the troughs to water their flock. The shepherds came down and drove them away, but shouldn't have done it in front of Moses. Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. This is Moses' third intercession that we've seen now. He's interceding for others. And rather than just sitting there and pouting because of his circumstance, he intercedes and he serves these ladies. This is part of how God made him. And God is going to use this in the days ahead, as we'll see. Well, verse 18, when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, Well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? There's seven of you. Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man, I would say. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Verse 22, and she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. 
Gershom in Hebrew means sojourner. It's important to notice here, before we take just a couple applications, that God brought Moses out at just the right time, in just the right place. When Moses thought he had lost everything and lost his family, lost every bit of treasure, God, God took care of him. Moses stepped out in faith. He did it wrong. But you know what? God's sovereign over all of our sins and all of our mistakes. And he provides now a family to welcome him, a wife to serve alongside him, and a child. Notice here that God's promise of seed and blessing continue, even though everything else is falling apart. This is how God's promises work, by the way. He continues to keep them in the midst of a life that falls apart very often. Well, meanwhile, back in Egypt, verse 23, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Conclusion, I want to give us three things to to take away from our time here. Number one, God sees your suffering. God sees your suffering. I don't know if you caught it or not there in those last couple verses, those last three verses. There are four different words used to describe the oppression they were facing. Groaned, slavery, cried out, groaning again. It's a different word in Hebrew. And then he uses four different words to describe God's reaction to it. Heard, remembered, saw, knew. God sees your suffering. He hears. He remembers. He sees. He knows. Suffering is real. And God knows every bit of it. The Psalms tells us that He catches all of our tears in a bottle. He is not unaware or unmoved by your misery. We do not have a God who is an absentee father. He is ever-present in the midst of all of our afflictions, even if He doesn't stop your afflictions immediately. He is always attentive to the cries of His people. He always welcomes your weeping. God sees your suffering. He sees it. And He enters into it. He enters into it with Moses, which is the foreshadowing of the way that he's ultimately going to enter in by sending his son, Jesus, born into a world of death and affliction and murder and infanticide to come to rescue his people. God sees your suffering. He knows. He knows. Secondly, God has a plan to deliver you from your suffering. God sees your suffering, and God has a plan, secondly, to deliver us from our suffering. One of the things we're watching in these opening chapters of the book of Exodus is that God is working while His people are weeping. They are weeping. He is working. He's working individually, 
He's working corporately. He's working nationally. He is working universally. God is working to bring about the plan that He has to rescue His people from their afflictions. You, you've, we've got to know this. As we watch the book of Exodus, one of the things that's very, very clear is that we have a God who ordains and oversees all things. Nothing in history is arbitrary. There's no such thing as luck or chance. All things are a part of God's perfect plan. God knew this persecution was coming. He foretold it 500 years before it happened. To, to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, he said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God knows down to the calendar day how long Israel is going to be in Egypt, and he knows every bit of their suffering there. Which, by the way, it's about 300 years that they're there in prosperity. The last 100 years appears to be when the, the affliction is happening. But it's important to know God knew it before it happened. And God knew that this dictator, Pharaoh, would arise because he ordained it. In chapter 9, verse 16, before the seventh plague, God said to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Listen, don't get it twisted, y'all. God rules the entire universe, everything. God sovereignly raised up this wicked king to come into power in order to execute part of his plan that could not have happened unless that man was in power. And he did it to deliver his people and to bring them into the promised land. So God knew this persecution was coming. God knew this dictator would arise. And God knows how he will deliver his people. He is preparing for it. God gave and preserved Moses in a miraculous way. Listen, God is not making up things as he goes along. He's not like in heaven, like, Gabriel, what should we do next? Like, he's, it's not how it works. He has a plan that he's known from before the foundation of the world that he is working out. This is why Rome, verses like Romans 8.28 are not just good for coffee cups. You've got to know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, we live in a world where not all things are good. Slavery, not good. Affliction, not good. Infanticide, not good. Evil, evil, evil. But we've got a God who rules and reigns over everything, and he is a God who is able to use evil and good in a way that he mixes it together as a masterpiece to show his glory and to deliver his people in a way that they will forever know him and enjoy him and have a joy that they never could have had unless it happened that way. you got to know that's true. God wants you to see that, that he sees your suffering and that he has a plan to deliver you from your suffering. Which thirdly and finally, God delivers us so that we may know him. God delivers us so that we may know him. That flows right out of the last one. God does what he does so that we can know him as he is. He's revealing himself to Israel and to us as the redeemer of sinners and the redeemer of the afflicted. And he's doing this in a way that is yeah, that's, that's marvelous and painful. 
The way of redemption is marked with pain. Slavery was horrific. But God used it to teach them who they are, who He is, and their need for Him. Because one of the things when you read through the whole of the Bible is that we learn is that enslavement and slavery is not just a sociological reality. It's a spiritual reality as well. God uses this image of slavery very often to teach Israel and to teach us about what our natural state is, which is enslaved to sin. And God takes the most horrific picture imaginable, slavery, and uses it to depict all of our estates apart from his miraculous and merciful intervention. We are enslaved to sin. And, and it's amazing how we can miss this. I mean, you remember the Pharisees when they're talking to Jesus? They said, we've never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus is like, what? You never read Exodus? You not remember your history? The same is true for us in our slavery to sin. Why would God use slavery, though? Why, why this? It's the most entrapped form of human condition. There's, there's no way out. There's no hope unless God intervenes. Which is exactly how sin is. You can't free yourself. You need a Savior to enter in. It's the strongest picture that God could use. God uses their time in Egypt to make an unavoidable statement. They need a Redeemer. Now, as I've read this, I wrestled in my own heart. God, this seems cruel to allow slavery to happen to your people. I mentioned to you that I had been reading My Bondage and My Freedom by Frederick Douglass. As I read through and I, I watched the, the slavery and the suffering of the African Americans that, that he described and his own suffering, there, certainly my heart broke and I, I, I brought it to tears several times. I'd just read Carrie. I'd be choking up. Look at this. And slavery is horrific. And do not hear what I'm about to say in any way, shape, or form as, as painting it in a good light. But there was a different kind of feeling of sorrow that I felt for the slave masters. They sat there in their plush plantations. They had wealth and abundance. They had every amenity and every pleasure that they could want with no accountability. They seemed to get away with everything. And they're so blind to God. They had no idea that they were enemies of God because they had so much comfort. Yeah, I was so moved by the faith of many slaves and the way that in the midst of their affliction, they would look to heaven and they knew that their only hope was God. 
And it struck me in a way that I, I, I hope you'll understand what I'm trying to say, that, that they had a privileged position in their affliction. Not that slavery in any way, shape, or form is good. I think you understand what I'm saying. Their eyes were open to a need that Pharaoh and every taskmaster and every slave master is blind to. One of the merciful things that God does for us is to show us our sin. In the midst of a world where everything hurts in one way, shape, or form, whether sin that's done to us or sin that we do to ourselves and to others, God uses all of that pain and all of that affliction to prime the pumps of our heart to look to the heavens and say, we need a deliverer. We need somebody to get us out of this because I can't do it and I am helpless and I am hopeless. Just what the whole book of Exodus is intended to do, it's intended to prime the pump of the heart to make people cry out and to say, we need a deliverer. One who's going to be greater than Moses. One who's going to enter into our sufferings. Who's going to go toe-to-toe with the chief taskmaster who is Satan. Who is going to shed his own blood. And that all who by faith will hide under it. That they will escape the judgment that is to come. And they will be brought through a miraculous Red Sea deliverance. And taken to a promised land where there will be no more crying or tears or pain. The whole book of Exodus is intended to prime the, the heart for Jesus. That we would see Him as the hope of His people. But when you read through Exodus, you're going to see it's so slow. It happens so slowly. God is in no hurry. He is in no hurry as He works this out. And it's not because he's uncaring about affliction. It's because it's almost like a, you know when you're watching a highlight reel and they slow it down so you can see somebody just do their, th- you know, dunk on somebody or whatever your, the slow-mo thing is. It lets you eat up every moment and to see the reaction of the people in the crowds that you would have missed had it just gone by fast. It's like God is doing that in salvation in the book of Exodus. He's taking the slow train out to make sure there's no doubt in anybody's mind who rules the world. Bring your God executed. Bring your God executed. Executes all of Egypt's gods before them and then splits the sea. The Red Sea is the Old Testament cross and empty tomb. It is what Israel looks back to time and time again. It was a slow salvation, but it was a certain one. And for us today and this day, who have trusted in Christ, hold fast. He is working out his plan, and soon and very soon, the Lord Jesus will return and deliver his people from all their afflictions. And you can know that God sees your suffering, and you can know that God has a plan to deliver, and you can know that he delivers in such a way that we would know him. God delivers his people from their afflictions so they will know he is the Lord. But if this morning you find yourself with Pharaoh... And maybe you wouldn't see yourself in that light, but you would, you would know that you do not worship the Lord Jesus. I just want to tell you, friend, that this day is a day of mercy, that you would hear that there is a God who can save even you.
He would call for you to turn from your sin and to trust in him and to believe in Christ who died and rose from the dead. In him, there is salvation, no matter where you've been or what you've done. May God give us grace as we continue to study him in the book of Exodus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would help us to have eyes to see. That in our affliction, Lord, certainly all of us have our own sin, but many of us have known sin that has been done to us. God, whatever our afflictions are, would you show us how merciful you are to meet us in the midst of our afflictions and to give us the promise that you are a sure and certain deliverer. And God, we pray that we would, we would know that you deliver your people from your afflictions so that we will know you and might we know you all the more. God, stir our hearts to love you more than all the treasures and pleasures that the world has to offer. May we, like Moses in faith, leave behind the fleeting pleasures and may we flee unto Jesus in faith. Father, we thank you and we pray, God, that you would make us a people who believe what you say. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.